The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC is available online at www.overlandpark.cc. Well, welcome to OPCC. I want to wish you a happy Sunday. Good to see you all. A um, couple of things to report on. If you, if you uh, have your Bibles, number one, go to Acts chapter 17. That's where we'll be today. Um, so let me just get this out of the way, okay? Um, <laughs> You keep, people keep asking me, did you get your buck yet? You will know <laughs> when I get him. I'm after a challenging one, and I'm having a ball trying to chase him, but he is frustrating, so just, just wait. Like, you'll know. We're going to have a party. Uh, the second thing is, is uh, uh, Jeffrey and Rachel, sir, last Sunday before they traveled back to England and are united in marriage. Yeah, <laughs> so we're going to miss you guys while you're gone, and Camden is going off to the Navy. It's his last Sunday with us. I'm going to welcome, just encourage those guys, give them all a hug today, You'll be a, they'll be encouraged by that, and we're going to miss you guys um, and be thinking about you while you're gone. But Okay, so we're in Acts chapter 17, and so sometimes um, we look at culture and it can leave us wondering if people care or know about God. <laughs> like you just, sometimes you could be watching the news or watching reports or interacting with people and just be like, man, like does anybody even care or know about God? And it sometimes can make you angry. You get a little bit upset about some of the things that are going on around you. And you start wondering, man, do I have the right spirit about how I feel towards the things that I'm seeing? And so interestingly, in our text, we find that this is not new. It's been this way for thousands of years. I think um, sometimes we look at America and we, we wonder, is there no shame anymore, right? Um, and so we think that, oh, man, things are really getting bad. Well, they, they have been bad before, and certainly in America, we sort of saw a, a, post, or a Christian um, nation, if you will, meaning that primarily most people that were in America, we're, we're believers in Christ and tried to follow the Lord, and now we're in a post-Christian era, and so definitely things have shifted and changed in America, but prior to the time of Christ, man, things were extremely dark, and so then Christ shows up, and he is uh, the light of the world. It's one of the things that he uh, talks about himself as being the light of the world that brings hope uh, to, you, to humanity, and so after he calls these followers and he sets in motion this this mission that he sets them on to go and be that light to the world, um, you have to remember that, that things are really messed up uh, in this dark culture that exists um, all around. Like there have never been any churches that were talking about Jesus being the light of the world because Jesus had just showed up. And so as we rem- rem- were reminded in this Christmas season about what it's about, it's about the light of the world coming. And so then he dies and he, he rises from the dead and that light starts getting shed. And so in Acts chapter 17, Paul, he keeps running into these situations where he's so aggressive with the gospel and the, the situations that the Lord's putting him in, like he's a lightning rod. And they have to like, man, we got to get this guy out of here. Like they're going to kill us off. We don't get him out of here. So they go into these different areas and, and he's in Berea and they have to send him out and Timothy and Silas stay back and they're discipling people. And Paul is in the city of Athens which he wasn't really planning on going to. Remember, he had a Macedonian vision of a man calling for them to come over and help him. 
And so they go through these different areas, and then he has to leave. And so he's just waiting on uh, Timothy and Silas to catch up with him so they could continue on their journey. And so he's hanging out in Athens, which at this time was a, um, a very influential place culturally, like things like philosophically, it was, it was the place of the thinkers during this time uh, in, in world history. And so he, he's there, and, and let's just kind of look at and think about how sometimes we look in culture, at culture as believers and things kind of bother us, and let's look and see what happens for Paul as he's walking around uh, in, in, this, in this city of Athens. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, this is verse 16, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. And a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him, and some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting, to the, a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. And all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And Paul then stood up in this meeting. He stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. So you want to know the theology of man? Paul's giving it to us right here. It says, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not very far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone a stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed, and among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. And so we see here, man, Paul is just walking around and waiting on his bros to show up in Athens. You could just imagine yourself at a place 
like just walking around a cultural melting pot, maybe walking around New York City or, or Chicago or maybe even someplace here in Kansas City. He's just walking around and he's looking and he's waiting and, and he gets distressed. He gets distressed. There's idols everywhere. I mean, they got an idol to this and an idol to that. I mean, they worship everything. It's just an incredibly religious culture that he's walking around in. And the, the phrase that is used here in the Greek is um, proxeno. And it means that when it says he was distressed, this word proxeno, it means that his spirit was provoked to a righteous anger that spurred him to act. Like he's looking around, man, and he sees this God, and he sees an idol over here to this God, and, he's, and he knows what he knows, man. He has encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. He has been born again. The Spirit of God is alive in him. He's like Jeremiah. It burns in his bones, and woe to him if he does not preach the gospel. And he's just stirred up on the inside to the point he's got to do something. And he doesn't know what to do, so he starts as he always does, and he goes to a synagogue while services are happening on and there, and he has conversations with them. And then it says he's just wandering around um, the marketplace, and he's just interacting with people. He's just having conversations, and he started talking to those who crossed his path, and what happened is he got some traction in one of those conversations, and he started to get some movement, and I'm reminded of Jesus as he commands us all in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. He tells us to go ye therefore and make disciples. We're to go and we're to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them everything that Jesus taught us, okay? And so as the Spirit teaches us, we're going to go and make disciples. Now, the Greek behind that particular commission, it says, as you were going, make disciples. And so we have a process around the church where we intentionally invite people and we walk with them for, for a year or so and try to ensure that they know how to make disciples that make disciples. And that's one form of discipleship. But that's not the only form of discipleship. It says, as you are going, as you are in the Starbucks, make disciples. As you are at the Price Shopper, look to make disciples. As you are at the Little League games or interacting with your kids, uh, uh, friends, parents, you're making disciples. As you are going, you do this. Now, you may not be in a formal relationship where you've invited a person into your life and you're meeting in a rhythm week to week. But as we're going, we're to be making disciples and having conversations. It's a call upon all of our lives to be engaged in that kind of uh, uh, conversations with people because it is the reason that we have hope in this life. And we're supposed to be able to give an answer for that reason, and that happens in these conversations. And so Paul is just doing that, and he gets some traction in one of those conversations. And that leads to him being invited to, uh, to make a case for his faith. And so these people, they sat around and they were just wanting to make sure that they had, they were giving uh, uh, honor to all the gods that they could think of and that had ever been thought of. And so, um, and they thought philosophically about how the world worked and, and they were, they were kind of, there's two different groups uh, here of these, these philosophical mindsets that they want to hear more about what Paul has to say. And so um, he, he's invited to come and make a, a presentation, and it's called the Mars Hill Presentation. And, and so it's incredible because Paul always, when he's interacting in the synagogue and he's talking to the Jews, he always goes back to the Old Testament. And he says, look here, our father's this and our father's that. You remember Moses and you remember the prophets. And this is what they, he doesn't do any of that here. Why? Because these aren't Jewish people. 
These are people who do not um, have any foundation, if you will, in Jewish thought. And so they are not monotheistic in their, their faith. They don't rely on the Old Testament teaching of the prophets. They're just kind of going along, doing whatever they want. They're humanists, okay? You watch, uh, <laughs> you watch what's happening in our culture? Like, that's what they are. Like, this is what's happening in our culture, a very humanistic thought. Um, process. We look and see what's taught in the universities. We see the great thinkers of the world. And we see that some of the things that these great thinkers think are absurd. That's just, that, that's just the way it is. They're so, they're so, their academic minds have gone so far that logically they don't even make sense anymore on some things. It's, let me be careful or I'm going to have some proxeno come out today. And so he's, 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 he's invited to share with them. And as he's invited to share with them, it's interesting what he does. He, he connects with them on a spiritual level, even though they're miles apart. Like these guys believe in all kinds of gods. They believe in multiple gods. Paul believes in Jesus, okay? But he uses their faith and what they believe to connect with them. And so they're miles apart, but he sees that they're spiritual in their um, thought process. And so he recognizes that, and he uses one of their idols. As he's going around town, and, and he's doing his thing, and he sees all these idols that are upsetting him. There's one there that is, um, has an inscription to an unknown God. Now, why did they have that one? Just in case they forgot one. <laughs> You see how absurd it can be to, when we really, to, like, they wanted to make sure that they didn't forget one, so they just made up a God, an idol to one that may have been forgotten, so that they were ensured that all of them were covered and they wouldn't be punished. And so um, Paul says he used their idols, this unknown God, to share the good news. And the good news was, is this unknown God that you guys have an idol to, you can actually know him. And that is the good news of Jesus Christ. And so he shares three critical steps to know God and have the kingdom break out in your life. So if you're here today and you go, man, I, is the kingdom breaking out in my life? These steps are essentials, okay? You may be here and you've heard me preach the gospel over and over and you're like, man, how do I get to this point where I know the Lord like Jimmy is talking about? Well, Paul, he shares with us in, in this uh, passage of scripture. And, and so I'm gonna share some things with you that I think uh, will help you, one, to know him if you don't, and two, if you do know him, to have these conversations with your friends, with your family, as the Lord brings them about and you're invited into a moment to share with them, here are some essentials to helping a person come to the saving knowledge of Christ. And here's the first one. To know him, you have to recognize that God is, okay? This is just an essential thing. There are some people that are not willing to do that, and we're wasting our time if we're trying to minister to them if they're not willing to recognize that God is. The Athenians had taken the first step. They were religious. They were supernaturalists. And so they, they believed in gods. And so it's obvious, um, obviously impossible to know God if you deny exist. There's no way to get to know him if you don't believe that he's there. The, the Bible speaks about this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. It says this, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. So you're never going to please God that exists, the Bible teaches us, that if we don't have some faith. It says, because anyone who comes to him, what, what must he do? He must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. 
And so the first step to knowing God is believing and recognizing that God is. Because you will not search for a path that you believe does not exist. Okay, so we're looking at, and we go, okay, man, where am I at on this? Do I believe that God is? <laughs> like, like, I do. That's why I'm here this morning. Um, and, and a lot of times we'll interact with a person, and I think we have to recognize, does this person believe that God is? And if they do, that's, that's kind of a good um, benchmark for analyzing whether or not I move into spiritual conversations for them with them. So they believed that there was a God they didn't know. So Paul capitalizes on that and he makes a case. And he says to us and to them, it takes faith to believe, okay? And so we're going to just lay that out and say, if you're going to know God, there's going to be a faith element in it. And you have to believe that he exists. But what it is not is a blind leap in the dark. We're not believing in nothing. And that's why Paul, as he lays out this case, he says God has given us some proof. And so we... Uh, we start with that God is. Now, there are several different arguments um, outside of the Bible that you build this case on. And one of the ones that Paul uses here is the cosmological argument. What is the cosmological argument? It is that everything has to have a cause, okay? So things, everything that begins to exist must have a cause. And so we can look at the universe and we know that it had a beginning. So we look at it and we go, well, it has to have a cause behind its, the beginning of its existence. And so we say, there is a creator that caused all of this existence. That's called the cosmological argument. And so when a person, you're talking to them about um, things of the faith, you need to be able to understand that. You don't have to be a philosopher, but you need to just to simply understand everything that exists has to have a cause. And so behind that, and we look at the universe, it exists, so there must be a cause, so that is the cosmological argument for the existence of God. And so the universe must have a cause, and we look at that and say it is the Lord. And, and, and so we look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 4, the Bible even teaches this. And the writer of Hebrews says, for every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. And so Paul takes them back and he talks to them and, and he, as he's saying to them, he says in verse 24, the God, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. So he's beginning to use the cosmological argument. There are other arguments that one can make for the case for the existence of God. This doesn't mean you know God, but it's the first step to acknowledging that you can know him is believing that he is, he is there. There's another argument called the teleological argument. And what is it? It is that... If there is something with design, there must be a design behind it. And one of the, the person who made it famous would be, uh, um, who made it famous, teaches on it, would say something like, if, you were, if a person who had never seen anybody or anything ever before was walking along the beach, he didn't know any other human beings. He was the only human being. And he's walking along the sandy beach, and he comes across a shiny object, and he picks it up, and he looks at it. And it's got a little ticker thing that's going around and it's making us a, a tick, 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 tick. And it's got all these symbols around and he looks at it. He, he, would have to, he would have to logically conclude someone made this thing, right? It has design. It has purpose. There is something behind it. So therefore, one can come to the conclusion that there is a designer that exists. This thing just didn't happen all of a sudden. That's the teleological argument. We look at the universe and we see that a little worm comes up out of the ground, and he's an ugly little worm, and he climbs up in a tree, 
And he gets himself all wrapped up in a cocoon. And then he's just there for a while. And then it gets warm and he comes out of that cocoon and he's this beautiful butterfly. <laughs> and so they try to tell us that that is by chance. All of these things just miraculously happen and boom, we evolved into this. Okay? But the problem with that is, is that it, it doesn't make any logical sense whatsoever to look at everything that we see in the created universe and say that all of a sudden, through the process of evolution, things go from a, a state of chaos to a state of order. It doesn't happen any, anywhere. Like, you want, to, you want proof that that doesn't work? Just look in the mirror, right? Each year that passes, you can see that you're not getting better, Right? <laughs> And so everything is that way. Everything, in the, and, and so that is a violation of the second law of the thermodynamics that things tend to get better. They don't tend to get better, they tend to get worse. But yeah, evolutionists would tell us things tend to get better. And then there's this whole gaping hole in the fossil record that doesn't make sense. Okay, and so we look at all of this and we go, okay, we've got the cosmological argument, we've got the teleological argument that tells us that, there, that something with design has to have a designer, and, and here's probably one of my favorite ones is the moral argument. What is the moral argument? This all you need to remember about this is the word ought. Now just think, stop and think for a moment about the word ought. You ought to not do that. Where does that come from? Where does the word ought come from? Who decided what we ought not do and we ought to do? It's in us. And that is called the moral argument, is that God has put in us the knowing to do good. We have a feeling inside of us. And we're created with this morality inside of us that thinks that we ought or ought not do something. Like if you look at the animal kingdom, they don't have that. Like the animal kingdom, you, you look at how they interact and they don't think about what they ought and they ought not do. All they think about is survival. And if that means I'm going to eat you, I'm going to eat you. Okay, it doesn't mean there's no, there's, all it is about is instinctively surviving. But humanity, we have this design inside of us that we have morality. And so that's the moral argument. So we look at all of these and I take the time to do that is just to say, look, man, Whenever you talk about knowing God, and Paul is doing that with these Athenians, these philosophical thinkers, he's, he's, he's beginning to say, man, there's a creator. This thing that you think is unknown, I'm going to proclaim him to you. And he uses the creative or, created order to show him. And so we go, man, a lot of times we go, well, what about people? And this is people in, in, in the, in, in, that are opposed to or not walking with the Lord or they're in a state of rebellion, sort of acting like a teenager as a, as a Christian. They often say things like, well, what about the guy who's you know, born in a remote area and he doesn't have any churches around him and he grows up in this village and his dad taught him all the time about voodoo. Well, that same guy can see the sun come up and see the sun go down. And that same guy can watch the four seasons. And that same guy can watch the caterpillar turn into a butterfly. He can watch the miracle of birth. And at some point, he's got to realize that that voodoo doll is not causing this to happen. That's right. It's called natural revelation. So we look at nature, and Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1. He says that nature screams to a person that God is. And so what is the responsibility of the human being? He is to respond to the 
revelation that God has brought about his way. And so nature screams of the existence of God. If we're going to know him, the first step is acknowledging and recognizing that he is. And that brings us to the second step. To know him, you have to recognize who he is. Like, who is God? Like, you must get to know someone to know someone, right? Like, if you're going to know someone, you have to spend a little time to get to know them. And so who is he? Well, Paul lays out in verses 24 through 29, very specifically, and I'm not going to take the time to expound on every one of these things, but you can kind of do some study on your own. First of all, in verse 24, he says he's the creator. God created everything. When we ask who is God, he is the creator of all things. We look at the second part of verse um, 24, and it says that he does not live in temples built by hands. That God does not exist in this church. He does not exist in any sort of idol. He doesn't exist in anything that is man-made, which we can trace that thought on and understand more about this God um, who has revealed himself to us. And we learn that God lives where? In us. Okay, so God lives in the heart. We look at verse 25 and we often think, well, I've got to give to God. I encourage you guys, thank you for all of those of you who jumped in on the campaign and we've raised, uh, you know, this money's coming in to make a change to the building and you're giving. Now, are you giving and, and does that help God? No, you cannot do anything to help God. Well, what about if you obey and you're nice to your husband? Does that help God? No, you will do nothing ever in your existence to add any value to God whatsoever. He is God. Now you can honor him with your life, but he doesn't need anything from you. As a matter of fact, we don't give to God, he gives to us. And we may return to him what he has given, but we don't start with our stuff giving to God. You start with God's stuff. Now you might say it's my stuff, but that's just because your theological perspective of who God is, is is messed up. God is the one who gives everything. And so we look at that and what do we see in, in verse um, 25? It says, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Our very existence comes from God, and so he is the giver in this whole thing. And that's important for us to recognize about who God is, is because we will start to think that we can please God by what we do, and you can't. How can you please God? The writer of Hebrews told us, with faith, to believe that he is. And then the second part is to to start recognizing who he is, and then lining ourselves up with what he, um, uh, who, who his identity is, is so that we're living out in a place of freedom that he has designed for us to live in, okay? So we look at this, and we see that he lives in the heart, he's the giver, and then verse 26, this is pretty interesting, he is the controller, Look at verse 26. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. What does that mean? It means that the Lord knew when he created you that on December 8th in 2019, you'd be sitting right in the chair that you're sitting in today, listening to this message that you're listening to, being taught from the Apostle Paul's words out of Acts chapter 17. He knew that there would be a verse that was later inscribed by the guy that inscribed it. He knew that Jimmy Holbrook would be born and he knew the exact message that I would be preaching because he is the controller behind everything around us, okay? And so God is in control of, a, of all the things that are happening. And so as we look at him uh, as the controller, it says that 
He determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. And so why? Why did God do that? Well, look at verses 27 through 29, and we see that his purpose in doing that is to be the revealer. Watch this. God did this so that men would what? Seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. So why did God create all of this? Why did God set all of this in motion? Because it is the nature of God to give. It is the nature of God to love. And so why, like God creates humanity and your very creation, the purpose of your creation is to seek him out and find your freedom. Okay, And so anybody who rebels against that is rebelling against a very created order. And then you're rebelling against all, well, I just don't want to believe. Well, then you're rebelling against the things that the nature teaches us, even if you don't believe in God, the cosmological, the moral, and the teleological argument. What are you going to do with those? And so I kind of land in this place is that it is foolish. It is insane to live like God doesn't exist. Like when we begin to make logical sense of the things around us and we start thinking about these things and we spend some time investing mentally on what this means, it draws us to seek him out and we begin to understand that we find freedom as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet some of us are living in a place of rebellion and we're standing away from the Lord. And what happens to us? We're living in prison and we think we're free. We are deceived by the enemy. And the Lord tells us, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And so as we yield to who God is, and we yield to um, that he is, then that leads us to this final part that he is revealing. And so to know him, you must recognize what God said. And so what did he say? Well, recognizing that he is, this is very important. Recognizing that he is and who he is does not mean you're saved. Like you can believe that God is there, and you can, believe, um, you can believe that Jesus actually lived and not know him. And so we must acknowledge what he said. And so Paul gives us, as he builds this case in verses 30 through 31, he gives us what it is that we are to recognize. Now watch this. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. In other words, God was sort of tolerant with people and how they were living because it was a dark world that was still totally captivated by the enemy. There was no light in it. But come Christmas morning, the light of the world has shown up and God is no longer overlooking the ignorance, okay? And so what does he say? But now he commands all people everywhere to what? Repent. Change your mind and your heart about the way you're thinking and living. Repent, and Jesus said what? As he come in to preach every town he came into, go and tell them to repent and believe what? The good news that I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. Why is this important? Verse 31 says, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given 
proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. So the people are often saying, man, I would believe if God would just give me some proof. Like what? That a man lived 2,000 years ago and all of a sudden everybody said that he was claiming to be God and then they crucified him on the cross of Calvary and put him in the grave for three days and then three days later all of his followers said they interacted with him and he rose from the dead. How much proof do you want, man? Like, what do you want? The problem is not that you need proof. The problem is you are not examining the proof. You don't want to believe that God exists. You want to be just like the person who's an evolutionist who says that we all evolved from something because if we kill God, we don't have to be accountable to anybody and we can do whatever we want. But when we begin to analyze the information that is available to us and looking at the proof that God has given to us and we analyze this man, Jesus, and we do a deep study on who is Jesus? Did he really live? Did he, did he rise from the dead? Like, is he changing the world? Like, see, he, if you choose to deny that, you gotta do something with me. Like, I'm living proof that Jesus has risen from the dead. And you wanna say, like, you either gotta say, man, that guy is a lunatic, which some of you probably would say, where that guy knows something that I don't know. And what I'm standing here and testifying you, to you before is the same thing Paul was doing to these guys 2,000 years ago, that you can know this unknown God who people think is unknowable. He's given us all the proof that we need. And so he says, God has overlooked this, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And here's the, watch this. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some men sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed, and among them was Dionysius. One guy off of the council actually became a follower of Jesus. And then there was a woman named Damaris and a number of others. But it was not a revival that broke out in the city of Athens. And Paul never visits there and does ministry again. And so what we're learning here is that the arrival of Christ changed how God deals with humanity. And the resurrection of Jesus is God's proof, and he demands repentance from hum human beings in order to be right. And so that's why we always say, man, you've got to repent and believe. Now, as we do that, then we're saying, all we're acknowledging is that, God, you exist. God, I, I, I realize who you are. And God, I realize what you've said, and I will bow the knee to that and humbly submit to your authority in my life as my Lord and Savior. And when a person does that, they are born again. And what happens? The God that people are worshiping and all of these idols and all of these other things supernaturally comes to live inside the human being, which is what we find taught in the Scripture and so he demands repentance, and he will judge the world based on how we respond to this revelation. So you will be judged based on how you respond to the truth that you were just taught this morning. And so the big idea is what? You can know God. Like, you can know him. Some sneered, some said we will think about it, and a few believed. And my question to you this morning is, what do you do with Jesus? Are you a sneer? Do you want to think about it some more? Are you the place in your life where you can be humble 
and repent and believe. Because you will be judged on that basis right there. You will not be judged on what you did for the church, on how much you gave to the church, on how good you were to your neighbors. You will not be judged on how much you help poor people. You won't be judged on, oh, well, you were a pretty good person. You will be judged on, what did you do with Jesus? That's it. Like, did you repent and make Jesus the Lord of your life? That's, where, that's the grounds for judgment because that's the proof that God has given and so the question is, is do you believe? Do you know him? Because today I've got good news, as Paul shared with the Athenians. You can know the God who a lot of people think is unknowable. And that's the good news of the gospel of Christ. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads in a spirit of prayer. And just, what does this mean for you today? Like, what is the Lord asking of you? Is he asking you to like... Like, be saved. What are you waiting on? What are you waiting on to acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah? And why would you not surrender if you believe that he is? Why would you not surrender to his lordship in your life? Make him the king of all that you are. That's where your freedom's at. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at www.overlandpark.cc.